From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Been able to collect not just recipes, but memories. That's a part of creating a cookbook that I hold very kind of sacred, and it's it's the part that I am so drawn to in other cookbooks. It's just those stories, those really evocative, meaningful stories. Hi there, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart. Now, if you're listening to this episode on the day it's released, bravo, and hello from Election Day in America. The midterms are here, and across the country, people are casting their ballots in a crucial election. And what better way to pass the time waiting in line at a polling booth than by listening to podcasts? And when we thought about our Election Day show, we knew there was one cookbook author we just had to have, Julia Tertian. Now, you just heard a bit from Julia, who is the author of several cookbooks, including Feed the Resistance, which was published just after and in response to the 2016 election. Her latest book, Now and Again, redefines the art of leftovers for home cooks everywhere. Now, Julia has worked on many cookbooks, including co-authoring Gwyneth Paltrow's books, and has published three of her own. Her first, Small Victories, was widely praised and called one of the best cookbooks of 2016 by The New York Times, The Washington Post, NPR, USA Today, Lucky Peach, and virtually every other food outlet. It's also, and I try not to pick favorites, one of my go-to cookbooks that I turn to time and time again. In today's episode, we're talking with Julia about leftovers, about bringing your full identity to your cookbook writing process, about her latest project, Equity at the Table, and about how cookbooks can be tools for social and political change. Plus, we're talking to Shakira Simley about Nourish Resist, the initiative she launched following the 2016 election. Plus, we're stopping by Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack. All of that this week on the 2018 midterms edition of Salt and Spine. Let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Julia Tertian joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you. We were actually just talking about Nick Sharma Mm -hmm. and the influence you've had and and several conversations that have taken place on Salt and Spine where authors have mentioned you as an inspiration. So we're really glad to have you here in the studio. That's so kind. Yeah. I mean, like I was saying, I feel like it's a pretty small world and it's nice to be in community with other authors. And it's great for all of us to have this kind of venue to to just talk more deeply about our work. Absolutely. So we're here to talk about your latest work, which is called Now and Again. Awesome. Um, and I'm going to get it right because I, I keep accidentally saying now and later. Oh, that's fine. Like I get candy. now and then a lot. Yes. Yeah. I've, I like every book I've worked on, there's been a million. The book I did, Feed the Resistance, people call Feed the Revolution. Right. I did Small Victories. I, I hear simple victories a lot, small pleasures. I've heard a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's like, Call it whatever you want. Just right. Call it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, it's called Now and Again, I should say. (laughs) So the correct title is Now and Again. Um, but it wasn't originally the title that you envisioned, right? You had another title in mind that you really liked, which was, um, so it was just going to be a book about reinventing leftovers was my original vision. Um, and I thought I would call it It's Me Again because I thought that was the funniest thing I've ever thought of. But it, um, I, I felt like it wasn't actually enough because if it was just a book about reinventing leftovers without telling you what the thing was in the first place, it felt like a, to me, a very incomplete picture. It was sort of the, um, the end of the story without the beginning and the middle. Um, so it, yeah, it evolved into a much bigger book of menus and then ideas for things to do with the leftovers. So it, it became now and again. 
Right. And so it's sort of centered around these menus with, you know, recipes you make and then ideas for leftovers. And I do think you included It's Me Again yeah. as like the subhead for all <laughs> yeah. the little sidebars yeah, with exactly. leftovers. I got to keep it in there. Yeah, you yeah, got it for in. sure. That's great. Sure. Um, so I will be honest and say I have a hatred. Maybe hatred's a strong word, but I have a distaste mm-hmm. for leftovers. A lot of people do. Yeah. That's okay. And I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> yes. I'm being honest. Although I have cooked a little bit from your book. I'm eager to cook more from it. I made the other night the twice baked potatoes mm-hmm. and then turned them into a potato saw, soup. Yes. Like you recommended. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that I, in my mind, don't like about leftovers. And maybe your book is helping me rethink about mm-hmm. my leftover attitudes is I tend to think of leftovers as things that are sort of like thrown in the microwave yes. and nuked, right? Yeah. The same thing over and over. Yeah. And like you made a bowl of chili mm-hmm. and now it's like your ninth meal yeah. and you're still eating chili. Yeah. Um, the goddamn so chili. How, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so how did you approach the leftovers sure. then in this book to, you know, sort of break that? Mold? Yeah. I, yeah, I think the world can very much be divided into people who love leftovers or hate them. It seems to be, it's kind of like cilantro. Like there's a yeah. real kind of dividing line. Um, I have always been on team leftovers. Okay. Um, and what makes me excited about them and what I hope really comes through with the book is that, um, yeah, when I open the fridge and see a bunch of containers, um, I don't think, oh, the same old thing. Even though I should give the disclaimer, I have no problem nuking something and eating it or eating something cold sure, out of the fridge yes. like it actually really doesn't bother me but yeah that's a tangent the <laughs> what the book is really about is this idea of reinvention and seeing leftovers as you know kind of evidence of all the work you've already done you've already cooked all this food you've you've done so much work you've put yourself in such a great position to have another meal without putting in that much effort um and you can reinvent them and turn them into something completely new so you know leftovers don't have to be the same old thing they can be an invitation to something so creative and also just made with so much ease. And I'm a home cook who writes for other home cooks. So I'm always thinking about how can you put a, a memorable, delicious meal on the table as quickly as possible, with as little effort as possible, with as little money as possible, with as few dishes, <laughs> um, right. with as few trips to the grocery store, you know, all those kinds of things. So to me, leftovers just encompass that and, um, yeah, invite us to just be really creative and, um, transform something. And I didn't write the book with any, um, kind of, you know, plan of having some big metaphor or anything like that. But the more I've been thinking about it and talking with other people about it, I just, you know, it's a book about transformation and kind of second chances. And I think there's something really helpful in, in just that mindset. And I think if we look at just, something as simple as our leftovers from dinner as the potential to have this whole new life. You know, it gives me hope, you know, we all deserve a second chance. Yeah. yeah. I want to come back to that, but I really love that comparison. Um, one I, I don't think I would have ever made with leftovers mm-hmm. as a, a metaphor for second chances. Were I there... studied poetry in college, okay. so sometimes yes. I get real carried away. <laughs> Feel free to stop me. No, I liked it. <laughs> Were there tricks or tactics mm-hmm. that you sort of rely on when you think about reinventing mm-hmm. things in the fridge? I, when I was making the mm-hmm. twice-baked potatoes, mm-hmm. this is so genius mm-hmm. to make this into a soup. And then I was thinking, like, what other leftover things could I just, like, throw into some sure. broth and have a yeah. soup? Are there other sort of things like a soup or things that are sort of tried and true yeah. ways of reinventing a dish? Um, well, I, yeah, I appreciate that that was, you know, a positive experience for you. I think yes. just on a logistic level, I would say a lot of things, um, a lot of the leftovers in the book do kind of turn into, um, their soups fritters, I think yeah. are like, 
fritters were born of leftovers. <laughs> you know, it's just right. chopped up whatever, made, right. you know, mixed with a little batter and made really crisp, which everyone loves. So I feel like those two things do come up a lot. There's a lot of different, um, there's actually a whole section on fried rice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think yep. that's something that works really well. But in general, um, I would say that my biggest tip or, or trick when it comes to reinvented leftovers is a more cerebral one, I guess. And that is, that you don't have to tell everyone what's in everything. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so sometimes if you have some leftover that you've transformed, you know, I'm thinking particularly there's, there's a menu in the book that, um, two components of it. One is this really simple bib lettuce salad. It has a shallot vinaigrette on it. It gets served with this, this meal that includes a, a meatloaf and then, um, mashed cauliflower. This really beautiful puree of, of cauliflower and garlic that are boiled together and pureed and it's super simple and really good. And so the leftover idea from that menu combines two of those items. So you put your leftover mashed cauliflower and your leftover wilted lettuce, um, you know, kind of soggy leftover salad that most people would throw out. Sure. Um, you throw those things into a blender together with some stock vegetable if you want to keep it vegetarian, chicken, if not, whatever, you know, just some liquid. You puree it and you get this beautiful, like creamy, velvety soup. And that lettuce that would otherwise be, you know, in the trash or compost or whatever is, um, just kind of submits to the soup. It adds like a little body, but then all yeah. the flavor from the vinaigrette really seasons the soup and it just, it makes a really great soup. And if you were to serve that and say, here's like old salad soup, <laughs> you know, like that Wait, might not, not go the over the, I mean, <laughs> that's not what it's called. <laughs> so I think it's like keeping in mind, like, you can kind of, I don't know, there's sort of a fun, um, sort of feeling of like you're getting away with something by using leftovers in these right. ways. And I think when serving them, I think sometimes cooks can, you know, you can hold on to some little secrets to yourself and right. <laughs> not explain it. And, um, yeah, so that's, I would say my biggest tip or trick is that, you know, not everything needs a disclaimer. Okay. That's good to know. So you mentioned the meatloaf Mm -hmm. and the mashed cauliflower, Mm -hmm. and then sort of going back to your poetic metaphor Mm -hmm. of second chances. Those are recipes that you pointed to in in some of the content in your book, and then a piece you wrote recently, Mm -hmm. too, about adapting to cooking after your wife was diagnosed with diabetes. Mm -hmm. You have done your homework. (laughs) You're so good at doing that on the show, I've noticed. You really like know what you're talking about and do your research, which I just appreciate. So oh, thank you. That's just a note. <laughs> so, yeah, so much of, you know, a really uh, wonderful thing I got to uh, do in now and again is that through organizing it through menus um, and not just standalone recipes, I got to tell the story behind each menu, um, really explain from a very personal place what these meals have meant to me. Um, and sort of it's this place where I've been able to collect um, not just recipes, but but memories. And yeah. Um, um, that's a part of creating a cookbook that I, um, hold very kind of sacred. And it's, it's the part that I am so drawn to in other cookbooks. It's just those stories and those really evocative, meaningful stories. And so one I got to share, which was, um, introduced that menu with the meatloaf and the cauliflower and the salad was about how, uh, my wife Grace was diagnosed a few years ago with type one diabetes and was diagnosed as an adult. And it was, um, this sort of scary time because she was quite ill and we didn't know what was wrong. Um, so, sure. um, in that very scary moment of, of, uh, you know, receiving a kind of chronic diagnosis, uh, I as her spouse and just, a person who just loves her was, you know, what can I do? And I was so desperate to have something tangible to, to offer. Um, 
And for me, the answer to that question, what can I do came in the kitchen, um, which is usually where I find the answer to that question. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever the issue might be. And so her, uh, yeah, her diagnosis of, of type one diabetes completely changed so much for, for her and for us. And, um, so much of that came through in the kitchen and we, we together made really big shifts in our kitchen so that we could make decisions on a daily basis that really supported her health and, and in turn mine too. Um, and, you know, so it meant cutting out certain foods that just don't do us very many favors and, you know, health means different things to everyone. So sort of figuring out what it meant to us and then just kind of building a, a pantry and a kitchen that really supports us, um, makes it really easy to make decisions that make us feel good. I so believe that everyone deserves to eat good food that makes them happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wholly agree with that. And I think that was great to see that story in your book and the recipes to go along yeah, with thank it. Thank you. So you, one thing you do in both of your cookbooks or two of, two of the cookbooks that you've written, Small Victories and mm-hmm. Now and Again, is these lists of seven. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I love these. So you have things like seven things to do with a can of chickpeas, seven things to delegate, mm-hmm. seven things. Uh, and this one, I don't know how I feel about, but seven things to do with leftover wine because yeah. who has leftover no, wine? No, I've heard right? some people say, what's that? <laughs> what, is, what is leftover? <laughs> Concept I'm not familiar <laughs> with. Um, where did that idea come from sure. to do these lists of seven and, and specifically make them all seven? Yeah. I don't know where the seven came from. I think on small victories, I I really try to pack as much as I can in there. I think about value all the time, the value of your meal or whatever, kind of like what we were just talking about in terms of your health and well-being. And But also just, I just feel like if anyone's going to spend money on something I worked on, I just want them to get as much out of it as possible. And so the seven list in each are just these kind of extra ideas of things I'm sort of thinking about, things I'm asked, and I just wanted to provide some ideas. And um, I kind of, my... I don't know. I have a very long, kind of lifelong love of list making. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, um, I was remembering something the other day that I hadn't thought about in so long, which was when I was in high school one summer, I think maybe after my sophomore year, I, um, took a catering course at like okay. a local college. Sure. Over the course of like a, a couple of weeks. And cause I was that kid and that's yeah. how I wanted to spend my summer. Right. And on the first day, the instructor said, if you love making lists, you're in the right place. And I thought, I, like, I found my people. Like they like, were speaking right to yeah. you. <laughs> I like, felt so seen and heard. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, I love that part in both of your, that section in both of your books as well. You talked about high school and taking this class. Let's go back even earlier. You were sort of interested in food at a pretty young age, right? There's some pictures Mm -hmm. right in the beginning of the book now and again of you as a child. Mm -hmm. I think you posted one on Instagram recently of you with like a fake kitchen set or a toy kitchen set. When did you sort of know food was interesting to you and how, when did that click? I I wish I could tell you when, and I can't because I can't remember. I, I do not recall ever not wanting to be in the kitchen. It has been my lifelong love and, um, of endless curiosity and just kind of magnet. I've always felt pulled to the kitchen and to food um, from such an early age. And I feel so unbelievably fortunate that I have known what I love to do for my entire life. Um, and not only do I know what it is, I mean, I, I get to do it. So I'm right. very grateful. And I've always had like a real kind of guiding light and, and it's, and it's food. Yeah. Always. That's always. a great gift yeah. to know early on yeah. and to have that, that light there. And to have been supported in it too. You yeah. know, I had a, um, a family that really, um, 
was like, yeah, go for it. And, you know, I wasn't a kid who had like an easy bake oven. Like I had an actual oven, (laughs) you know, and I, I got to watch as much, you know, public television with watching people cook as I wanted. Uh, You know, if we were in a bookstore, cookbooks, you know, that was something I was allowed to just get. And I was so supported and so encouraged. And, um, that's something, you know, not only did I know I loved it, but I got to really feel supported in that love. So I'm very grateful for that. That's awesome. Do you remember your first cookbook? So I, so not only were my, my parents, my family, my extended family, very supportive of my, my interest in food. And my parents also worked in publishing. Right. I grew up with parents who worked in, um, mostly in magazines and then also did like freelance book design. So I grew up in a house where the adults in the home were making printed matter. Um, yeah. and I'm not that old, but my age corresponds to the fact that my parents were like literally cutting and pasting. Like it was before right. it was all done digitally. They worked right. a lot in, they were both graphic designers and art directors and editors and they're not writers. Um, but they kind of do all the other stuff that kind of goes into printed stuff. Okay. And so I was exposed to, to books and magazines and just print for, you know, since before I was born. So there were always, always cookbooks around. Um, but the first book that I feel like I was so drawn to that I kind of took from my parent shelf and sort of then lived in my bedroom. Um, those, it was a collection of books all by, um, the author Lee Bailey and, um, his books and his work have been some of absolutely some of the most inspirational to my own. Um, and my just in full circle and small world and maybe nepotism. I don't know. My <laughs> parents um, didn't work on all of them, but they helped Lee Bailey design many of his books. So okay. they were very involved in making them. So we had them. Um, right. I just, I was drawn to, to books, um, all books and especially cookbooks. My Lee yeah. Bailey books were in my, you know, duffel bag to college. Like I would bring one to summer camp because I like couldn't fall asleep without it. So that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, real, you know, yes. I don't know. Addiction. I don't know. How big is your cookbook collection? Do you know? I don't because what's you've had Diana Henry we had talking Diana about Henry and she she's got 4, yeah. No, I don't have that many. I yeah. I um what's the right word? I cull a lot. Okay. Um, sure. I I go through my collection a lot and try to really just hold on to the ones I really just want to look at all the time. I mean, at least a few hundred, but yeah, I um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there's downstairs too. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. I have a lot. <laughs> I have a lot. I don't there's know the that number. Storage shed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were there other books that have really influenced mm-hmm. you over the course of your time as a cookbook author? Definitely. Um, Edna Lewis's yeah. The Taste of Country Cooking to me is the best cookbook ever, 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 ever. I think it is just a stunning book that is so important. Um, I think it created legacy for where she was from, um, from Freetown, Virginia and to her family and, and, and their history. It was called Freetown. It was founded by a group of, of freed black slaves, which I believe included her grandparents who were part of the founding of it. And, um, without that book, you know, those stories and those recipes wouldn't exist. It's yeah. so beautifully written. Yeah. So, so beautifully written. Um, I think she was obviously such an important figure and such an important cook. And I think she's getting more recognition in, you know, the wake of her life um, than she did when she was alive. But I also think she was just such a gifted writer. And so that book to me absolutely stands the test of time. Yeah. I mean, beyond. And, um, 
also, uh, the writer, I guess she wasn't so much a cookbook author, but Lori Colin's mm-hmm. writing has yeah. been very inspiring to me and is, um, especially her book, Home Cooking is one that I also have carried around with me to various places. And I think all these people, Lee Bailey and Ed Lewis and Lori Colin, I think all evoked a sense of place and time in their work, which is something I'm really drawn to. Um, what I like so much about Lori Colin's work too is she was really funny. Like it yeah. was fun. Right. Um, it was fun to read her work. And I think sometimes, humor is absent in cookbooks and food writing. And to me, food is fun. Um, You know, the best part about a meal is not the food. It's like sitting around having a good time with whoever you're eating with. And I think bringing that feeling through um, something I really yeah love in her work there's yeah. more i'm just looking at this I wall know. there's there's so many more but those are the three that absolutely come first and foremost yeah to my mind we'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with julia tertian and now allison chats with shakira simley about nourish resist shakira thanks so much for talking with me today i'm happy to be here so what was the impetus for creating nourish resist I think Nourish Resist existed before we actually had a name for this sort of collaborative. We were a group of women of color working across the food industry in San Francisco and needing spaces outside of our workplaces to be able to connect with other folks who are like us who might have been dealing with similar issues, whether it be issues of like mobility in the workplace, um, issues of harassment, microaggressions, racism, recipes. It, It was just a place where we could come together and support one another. So after the election, we said, let's create this space and bring it to our community. And what do we know how to do best? We know how to feed people really well. That's what each one of us does in our own way every day. Um, and feed people not just well, but feed them good food from people, from other producers of color, people that we trust. And we're really good at fostering conversations and we have access to resources and spaces in our community. So let's pull this together because we felt like everyone was just heartbroken and feeling shattered and wanting to inject a sense of purpose in conversations and not just feeling guilty or hopeless, but taking that energy and putting it to something constructive. For home cooks listening, what advice do you have for them that no matter where they are, whether it's New York City or San Francisco or, you know, a very small town in Wyoming, like what can they do to nourish and resist? Everyone deserves a hot meal, right? You can provide a hot meal. There's probably a really thorny, hard issue in your town in your community that you want to address, you can bring people together. It can be like three people. It doesn't have to be like, I mean, we did a 200 person meal. Like you don't have to do that. Like it just takes one simple idea and then getting a group of people together to research, talk about it, do the work, I'd say. And I would also say that there's probably an organization or person already, probably a community of color or working class community or immigrant community um, or multilingual community already doing the work where you are. So you don't have to be like a founder. If you have time, you know, can you watch somebody's kids? Can you, you know, help an elder, like run an, an errand? Can you do some data entry? Like everyone has either time, food, capacity, or some sort of skill to give. And my thing is, is I now I always say this, I think apathy is a luxury. We don't have any time to race. If there's like a sense of urgency that I could spread to everyone right now, now is not the time to say, well, I don't really get, in, I don't get political. 
everything is political. And, you know, it's time. It's time. If you haven't felt like you had to be involved until right now and you're looking for a sign, like this is your sign. How do you stay nourished as you're resisting? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. I'm still learning that. I am energized by being intentional about seeing my friends. I'm energized by people. I call myself a social introvert. Like some, it goes back and forth. Like I yeah. definitely need like time alone at home when I'm just like putzing around my house or, you know, reading or just re- physically resting. I use this analogy of a dull knife is not particularly good in a kitchen. You have to take step aside and take time to sharpen it because um, you can injure yourself and Whenever I'm doing organizing work or, you know, working at City Hall, I'm like making sure that I'm not a dull knife. So definitely cooking for others. I love that. My One of my past lives is a master preserver. So whenever I have time to be over a simmering pot of fruit, that is a luxury and I enjoy it. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking with me today. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Allison. This has been great. Yes. So hopefully everyone gets their sign. Time's now. If you're a regular listener of Salt and Spine, you know that we record all our episodes at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. Really, it's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their expert teachers. And personally, I love the wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine interviews. Now, don't miss upcoming classes on topics like gluten-free holiday baking and Thanksgiving 101. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. And now back to our conversation with Julia Tertian. So you've worked in the cookbook industry for a while now. You've written a couple books on your own. You've co-authored mm-hmm. books. You've, you know, you co-authored Gwyneth Paltrow's mm-hmm. books. You've sort of had a wide range of experiences mm-hmm. in the cookbook industry. And I think people really respect you for that. So I'm curious what. That's nice books, to hear. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I'm curious what books you think we should be watching now. We mm-hmm. just talked about a few of your influences, mm-hmm. but are there books that have come out recently or are about to come out? Yeah. Or authors? I'm so excited about it. It's a book called Provisions. Um, it's written by two sisters, Suzanne and Michelle Rousseau. Um, they are Jamaican. They have had, a pretty unbelievable body of work together as, as sisters. They've opened restaurants and have done catering and they've done television and they've done another cookbook, uh, that was called, um, Caribbean potluck. But this book provisions is, it's a book. I haven't felt this excited about a book in a long time, not to like speak in hyperbole, but it's just, it's really sure. special and it's, it's beautifully written. It's beautifully shot. It's, you know, it's all the things we look for. Um, but it's also just a, an incredible collection of recipes. It's all vegetarian Caribbean recipes that are, um, I would say pretty contemporary. Um, it's very much the food that they make and eat themselves now in this day. Right. But the book is also so much a look back. Um, and it's very much the history of the women of the Caribbean and they, I'm probably not going to get it right, but they open the book. I think the first line, you know, in the introduction is, um, that you can't tell the story of Caribbean food without telling the story of the Caribbean women. Um, and they go into their own family history, but also Jamaica's history and, and sort of international history of, of the islands. It is just, it's so special and important. And, um, I've just been yeah. telling everyone about it because I think it's so great and I want to see it soar. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So one of your most visible pieces of work, or maybe perhaps most visible to, you know, those of us who pay close attention to the cookbook industry is your work to bring more equity to the Mm. cookbook industry and to cookbooks and the production of cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And so you've written about this a lot. You wrote a piece for Eater called To Change Racial Disparity in Food. Let's start with cookbooks. You founded an organization or helped Mm -hmm. launch this, this group Mm -hmm. called Equity at the Table that helps people who are producing food media or cookbooks have an equity lens in the hiring process Mm -hmm. and the finding of people who can contribute to their work. Is that sort of work for you something that you were cognizant of early on in your time in the cookbook Mm -hmm. industry? Or is that something that sort of became clear through your your lived experiences as a person in the cookbook world? Yeah, um, it's I would say, to be perfectly honest, it's the latter. um, And I, um, you know, wish I could tell you it was the former. um, But I, I have navigated my career. um, Yes, as a very openly queer woman, but very much as a white person in a very white industry. And it definitely uh, took me a bit to kind of, I would say, move away from my sort of, um, you know, just kind of, I guess, laser focus on my own work um, to then having a bit more of a peripheral vision and looking around and seeing who else was there um, yeah. and just really seeing who wasn't there um, and knowing how, how, you know, how hard I've worked to, you know, just, you know, gain a seat at the table and then realize how many people are not sitting at the table and also looking very much at who's doing the inviting. So yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I appreciate what you said. And I think my, um, focus on, um, inclusivity and equity is, is definitely a newer thing for me. And I also think that's kind of feels worth being really honest about because, um, you know, we're all, figuring it out as we go. And it's like never too late to kind of reshift focus. And the more community oriented I am in life in general, whether that's in my professional life or just in my personal life or whatever, I just, the happier I am, Um, you know, the longer that table becomes and, um, and the more I enjoy sitting at it, um, just to keep going with the metaphor. (laughs) So you started equity at the table then, which is sort of geared more towards the industry, Mm -hmm. right? So you're, you talk about people who are making the decisions, people who are deciding who gets a cookbook deal and who doesn't get a cookbook. Are there things that other people can do to help push the industry in that direction? Like what are people who are listeners who might just be an avid purchaser and consumer? How can you sort of help push the industry in that direction? Absolutely. So I should add that equity at the table is, um, is really for the entire food industry, which is so right. many industries. That's a very large umbrella term. Yeah. Um, the food industry, you know, it includes not only cookbooks and which is a, you know, a segment of media, um, of food media and, and journalism, but, um, you know, it also includes restaurants and, and farmers and, uh, people who produce wine and beer and cheese and yeah. pickles and all these things. And then, you know, all of the resources for everyone, including lawyers and agents. And, um, so yeah, equity at the table cast a very, very wide net. Um, but in terms of, of, uh, inclusivity and equity within the cookbook world, so, you know, a small corner of the food sure. world, there is so much that we can all do. And I, I sometimes forget that. And we are in the business of making products and we work with publishers to sell those products. Some people self-publish to sell their book. Um, and, you know, like any industry, it's, it's determined by demand. Um, right. we are responding to that demand by creating the supply. And that is all I know about economics. <laughs> um, but I think that um, people who purchase cookbooks have tremendous, tremendous power. Yeah. Um, and I think 
in this day and age, not only the, you know, I think it basically like everything I think comes down to the numbers and what books are purchased, but it also comes down to kind of the, the conversation around the books. So, you know, not only is it great to buy cookbooks written by authors of color, um, to support a more diverse and inclusive industry, it's equally important. This might sound silly, but to follow them on social media and yeah. engage and, you know, show publishers and, um, other people in positions of power that they have like loyal followings with an engaged audience. Um, right. you know, if you, have a cookbook author that you love and, um, you know, there's a, a local library near you that, um, host events or an independent bookstore or something like talk to that person about inviting that author to come do an event. Um, you know, show that there is demand for their work. There's, there's huge, huge power in the cookbook kind of buying audience and, the pretty amazing opportunities I've had to kind of travel and promote my work and stuff. I'm always asking people who else they, you know, want to show up for, you know, to right. have someone not only buy your book, but to show up to an event is huge. Yeah. Um, it is not something I take for granted and it's a very surreal experience when I experience it. And I'm always so eager to find out, you know, who else and, and who would you like to hear more from? And, um, we as readers, not only as, as the people who make cookbooks just, yeah, have, have huge amounts of power. And I think I'm, I'm a big fan of in general, I think when you see any type of injustice, so it could be sort of racial disparity in cookbooks, um, it could be anything, figuring out what it is we can do. Um, and, you know, it's important to talk about, it's so important to talk about, but I think it's um, even more important to take action on. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into Great. your other book that we haven't talked much oh, about, yeah. which is Feed the Resistance. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of seeing inequality mm-hmm. um, in the world. So you published Feed the Resistance very shortly after the 2016 mm-hmm. election, sort of um, rapid, yeah, rapid was, response cookbook, was, if we can use that term. In the fast lane, <laughs> yes. for sure. Yeah, um, And, you know, it was widely praised and I think received really well. Eater named it their top cookbook of the year. The proceeds went to the ACLU. Do you think through your experience putting that cookbook together and maybe some of the thinking and research that you did there, that cookbooks actually can be used as a catalyst for political or social change? Or did you see examples of that mm-hmm. happening with cookbooks at other points in history sure. as you were doing this? Um, thank you. And um, yes, I think that they absolutely have the power to be catalysts for change. And I am far from the first person who's thought of that. There's a tremendous legacy of cookbooks and of food being part of movements, various yeah. movements. Um, cookbooks have long, you know, community cookbooks, church cookbooks, synagogue cookbooks, school cookbooks, you know, sure. these sort of local cookbooks that have been made forever to support local causes. That has been kind of a, a real age old thing. There's also a huge and really fascinating legacy of kind of resistance cookbooks and cookbooks during the women's movement and the civil rights movement and so on. And, um, and there's a even broader legacy of, of food in the history of resistance. And so I think that feed the resistance is something I'm, I'm so proud of. I'm so happy we did. And the we is really important there. That it was, yeah. it was a book from a big community and as uh, sort of born from momentum as, as the book was out of the election and of a particular moment in time, it 1000% stands on the shoulders of so much other work. So yeah, it is by no means like a new thing. If there was one idea that uh, would, you know, bring us to a place of more justice and more peace um, and more kindness, you know, I think we would just follow that idea. Uh, right. We would be there and and we're not because oppression comes in so many different forms and therefore resistance must come in so many different forms. So feed the resistance includes 
a lot of ideas, but the range of ideas is really important because I think we all have to find our way of getting involved. And I just really believe the state of our country and of the world, there's been oppression and injustice forever. That is not new. Sure. Um, I think the option to ignore it feels like that does not exist to yeah. me. So I think we all have to find our way. That concept of getting involved in whatever way you can is not just in Feed the Resistance. It's also in Small Victories. Mm-hmm. It's also in Now and Again. You have content at the mm-hmm. end about how to do good. I yeah. think you call it your do good, give back mm-hmm. suggestions. There's 10 ideas in Now and Again. Can you give us a preview of like two sure. or three ways that people can get involved that you suggest? Yeah, um, I just really believe that anyone buying a cookbook, if that means you're a person interested in food, you're probably interested in helping people out. I think yeah. we as home cooks like to take care of people. I know that's a big part of why I cook. And I think if, if you're in a position to buy a cookbook, I would assume not only do you have the means to buy groceries and, and make a meal, but you've also got the time to you know think in this really lovely way about it. Um, people who buy cookbooks have huge amounts of power and we can have the power to get involved. So I included ideas at the end of, of both books about ways to give back. Um, and now and again, one of them is really simple, um, but I think really effective. And it's to just teach someone how to make a few things. And then another is to make food and and bring it to the first responders in your area. I live in a really rural area. So our fire department is a completely volunteer fire department. So when I test recipes, I bring a lot of it yeah, um, to them um, or to bring it to someone in your area who, you know, might not have access to, you know, a homemade meal. So there's all different ways. And another is to use um, gathering for a meal, you know, a dinner party or a cocktail party or whatever, you know, schedule that on election day, yeah. <laughs> you know, put a, put an event on the calendar that kind of like helps people remember, brings them together and, you know, just make a you know extra thing about it um yeah. you know and can't sit down to dinner if you haven't voted you right. know so it's, you know we yeah. can use food in all these different ways so i love that you need your like i voted stickers yeah. to get into my chili and cornbread <laughs> party tonight you know they don't give them in our town but oh really anyway oh, that's too bad i mean there's a, a line that you include in now and again that has really stuck with me mm-hmm. in the very beginning of now and again pose this question who is the last person at your table who doesn't look mm-hmm. like you i i read that and that's just really sort of stuck with me as i was getting ready for this interview. So I just wanted to offer that question from the cookbook out into the audio waves <laughs> yeah. of the world for all of our listeners. And I'll add that that was a yeah. question posed to me um, okay. by by a fellow cookbook author, Nicole Taylor, um, who is amazing. And I'm, I'm lucky to count her as a friend. And when she asked me the question, my reaction, I think, sounds like was kind of similar to yours. It, it gave me pause. And yeah. it was, it's a very simple question. And I think a really powerful one. And I think it can also apply to, you know, someone who doesn't look like you, someone who doesn't think like you, right. someone who's just had a different life experience experience, someone who doesn't vote the same way you do, you know, it's really easy to um, talk with people you agree with or <laughs> you yeah. know, have had similar experiences to. And I think it's harder, you know, the other way around, but food gives us such a great opportunity to have those conversations. So, yeah. Yeah. So I thank Nicole for that question. Yeah. So we always end with a little game. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe we'd end with, and and now we know that seven actually doesn't have any sort of like <laughs> symbolic meaning, but I, I embraced that for this game. So maybe we'll play like the seven list twist. Okay. Seven secret ingredients mm. in Julia Tertian's pantry, oh. Julia Tertian's kitchen. What okay. are the seven things that you rely on to just make, mm. make your food pop? Seven secret ingredients. Okay. Um, I would say I'm trying not to think of like obvious ones. Like lemon and salt. Yeah. But that's okay. not really a secret. No, but, but maybe okay, maybe secret's the wrong word. Yeah. Your seven key ingredients. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to do lemon and salt as one. Okay. Just put that on everything and you're yeah. good. You really don't need six more, but I'm going to give you yeah. six more. People um, under salt yeah. and under acid yeah. a lot. Yeah. It's a, a thing I had to oh, learn yeah. really early yeah. on in cooking. And there's no better teacher about that than Samin Nosrat. Mm-hmm. And I think has just really explained it better than anyone ever. Yes. And just, yeah, to me, they are the volume knobs on food and you just... You want to hear it. So, right. Yeah. Turn it up. Right. Yes. <laughs> Just here for the bad <laughs> metaphors. Okay. I love it. The rest, I think mustard is so important. Yeah. I put it in everything. I think it's so underrated. Um, I love it on its own, but also just in dressings and marinades and stuff. Like it's just the best. Um, so mustard. I use a lot of kimchi in my yeah. just life <laughs> and, sure. and recipes. I worked on a, um, a PBS show about Korea and a cookbook uh, that went with it. So I, it really stayed with me. Uh, and I think that is just the most flavor you can have without you as the home cook who's purchasing the jar doing right. any work because it requires so much work and time and right. let that serve you. Um I love pickled jalapenos. I put okay. them in yes. lots of recipes. I always have a jar. I love them. I think the brine is just as valuable as yeah. the chilies themselves. Um, I think that is so much flavor. Again, and what do you do with the brine? Um, you can make a really quick salad dressing out of it. Like if you have like a shredded cabbage or cucumbers, like yeah. that brine and olive oil is delicious. You can brine things in it. Um, like after you finish all the chilies, you have a jar of brine, you can use it to brine more vegetables. You could brine a chicken in it, you know, okay. pork chop. Like yeah. it's great. Splashed onto like, um, uh, in now and again, there's a chicken and black eyed pea chili. And at the very end, before you serve it, you put some of the brine from pickled jalapenos and right. it doesn't make it spite. It just kind of does that acid thing of just, it makes sure. it taste more like itself. Other ingredients. I have really been into, um, thanks to, I don't know if you've interviewed Von Diaz. I don't think no, you have. She's yet. awesome. Yeah. Another author to. who I love. She contributed to Feed the Resistance. Her book, Coconuts and Collards is great. And reading Von's work, I am just using adobo seasoning on everything. I think it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think within a lot of different adobos, season, you know, whether it's like Goya or your own that you make or whatever, like I think that garlic powder is a very underrated ingredient. And yeah. I think most cookbook authors just feel, I don't know, I get a sense that people think it's like below them or something. I love garlic powder and I watch a lot of, you know, my other guilty, a true guilty pleasure is watching Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. I love it. I love too. it. It's I could, so We could have a whole other show about it. Uh, we I, think it I think it's one of the more inclusive shows on television. He really yeah. features so many different people. Yeah. Everyone puts garlic powder in everything. Mm-hmm. If you watch that show, and yep. and it's like it's so good, it's delicious. He's also so positive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not and, a critique yeah. show. Like, and it's he just describes crazy. food really well. Yes, because you feel like you're there, even though you're not there. Because he's not yeah. just like, oh, it's good. Yeah, because it's like, what does that mean? He really right. describes it. So, as someone who writes a million headnotes, I appreciate that. Anyway, that's a I did not peg you as a huge guy here. Do you know I wrote a piece about it. it for Lucky Peach, but okay. it's no longer, right. so yes. it, it disappeared. Um. Okay, give me one more. One more. One more um, oh, key or secret ingredient yeah. in your pantry. I would say I love ketchup. I love okay. Heinz ketchup. Heinz ketchup. I think, Not fancy ketchup. No. Not the no. Sir Kensington's. I, Not to shame any brands. No, but. I feel bad <laughs> putting anyone down, but I just think it just, you know, some people just do something really well and just go with that. Right. Yeah. Right. I think it's a perfect thing. All right, great. Ketchup and Guy Fieri. Awesome. <laughs> that's that's the Julia Tertian <laughs> subtitle now. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, Julia. Thanks this for having so me. Fun. This was really fun. Thank you. 
We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. Hello, Brian. So we just sat down with Julia Tertian to talk about her latest cookbook, Now and Again, and I'm hoping you have some context to share with us. Well, sure. I mean, I absolutely love her first cookbook, yeah. Small Victories. Um, my wife and I cook from that all the time, and you can tell because of Paula's writing in all the <laughs> margins about what she's made and when she's made it. Right. Um, she is so good at giving very simple recipes, and she continues that with this new book, uh, where she just gives a couple of words as as the recipe, which is really makes it very approachable. But then she's got all these riffs that you can do on on each uh, recipe with different variations. But my favorite part is the small victories. Yeah, my very favorite small victory that she gave us that everybody should know and everyone will kick themselves for not having thought of themselves is when you're cutting the corn off of a cob, cut the cob in half and then it stands up flat on your counter. Yes. I mean, hello. (laughs) How many years have I been cooking with it rolling around and going crazy and my dog sitting underneath catching all the kernels? (laughs) So, you know, that is just a fabulous thing to have in my back pocket. And she's full of little information and and ideas like that. Yeah, so many little small victories and so many little tips too. I mean, she has these little lists of like seven things to do with a can of chickpeas and small victories and so much just little helpful nuggets of information for the home cook that are so valuable. Exactly. And I just can't wait to see how she's applied it to um, her next book about leftovers. And and I often have leftovers and I'm not sure what to do with them. So it's great to know. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Celia. Of course. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Julia Tertian's Now and Again, the applesauce cake with cream cheese and honey frosting, and the celebration chicken with sweet potatoes and dates. You can also hear Julia read an excerpt from her cookbook and enter to win your own copy of Now and Again in our weekly cookbook giveaway. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Special thanks this week to Shakira Simley of Nourish Resist. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday. So listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.